So as we've been looking at Isaiah 40 to 55 during these weeks, we've been looking at it especially with the view to what it teaches us about the journey of faith, what it explains to us about this spiritual life, this journey of following Jesus that uh, we have committed to. And we have been looking in these last few weeks at an interplay between opposites that Isaiah uses. And this is something that is very signature of this prophet, where he points to the way in which life is a lot about the interaction between <laughs> opposites and that we are both sinners and, and the redeemed, that we are both blind to things and have full vision of, of other things. That as we've looked at through these texts, And today we're going to look at Isaiah 53, and we're going to look at the interplay between suffering and redemption. It's something that I think is hard for us, but it's it's represented very much in the cross of Jesus Christ, but it's also represented very much in our own lives, that oftentimes our suffering is what leads us to an awareness of what redemption is is and the interplay between these things can be something that we engage throughout our Christian life. You know, the Christian life is not just one line that moves in this direction. (laughs) It is a turbulent line in some ways that uh, as we live this life of faith and Isaiah is very clear on how to manage that turbulence as he looks at these opposites and the interplay between them. But Isaiah 53 is a text that we know well as Christians. If we know Handel's Messiah, we we know it well. If we've been to an Easter service or a Good Friday service or a Monday Thursday service, we, we know it well. And it's a text that's impossible to read if you're a Christian. It's impossible to read this and not see in it words that depict the suffering, the death, and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And that's why the New Testament writers chose it, to use it to help them to understand and explain what happened in the cross of Jesus Christ. Isaiah's suffering and triumphant servant is a picture more than anything else of of faithfulness. The righteous one who remains faithful to relationship with God in spite of suffering. And in persevering through that suffering becomes one who inspires faithfulness and righteousness in others. And so I want to read it for us. And just in, I'm going to read only Isaiah 53 today. That's a, a misprint I didn't correct in my planning. But I want to read just Isaiah 53 for us today. And I just encourage you to to listen and let it sink in. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities 
and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his bruises, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future, for he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Move us by your spirit to a place of heart understanding, O God. Save us from too many words and too much explanation. And let us contemplate love that will not let us go. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting out with a bit of a lighter note, because that's a heavy passage. But in thinking about the interplay of suffering and redemption, it made me think of something my father used to say when we came to him as kids with some complaint or some uh, pain or some injustice that we had suffered from the other, like she hit me or the pain experienced, like um, a skinned knee. He used to say this, suffering is good for the soul. (laughs) My father was not a pious man. And in saying this, he was not saying it in any way that was trying to do anything other in the moment that he was saying it than trying to get us to focus on something other than our pain. It was a way of saying, oh, you'll get over it, you'll get beyond it. It was kind of a good-natured cynicism. It wasn't a mean cynicism. It was a good-natured cynicism. I wonder where I got it. Uh, And... (laughs) It was as if he was saying, and this is the way I always took it, It's just kind of a get over it in some ways. It was a way of saying you will get over it, you will get beyond it, and it hurts, but it won't be the last word. It wasn't unlike another billism. My father's name was Bill. Another billism that I remember that once when I hit my finger with a hammer when we were building something, he said, ooh, 
He says, that'll feel good when it stops hurting. <laughs> Very similar genre of fatherly wisdom. And I, I remember once when I was in my uh, late teens and I had a job at the Minute Shop, which was a liquor store near our house, and Lyle, the owner, said something once, and it, I can't remember what he said, but it prompted the response from me, oh, suffering's good for the soul. <laughs> and he kind of went back like this, and from that day on started calling me Father Roar. Um, <laughs> I was only 18 when I worked there, but he was calling me Father Roar. And I hadn't realized how pious that phrase sounded because I had always heard it more in this kind of good-natured sort of head pat. And, you know, since those days, that phrase has been redeemed for me and sort of given some of its more serious content because... Though my dad was joking, and I always took it that way, I've come to see that in more ways than one, he was absolutely right. Suffering is good for the soul. And it's not something that we're really, something that we readily acknowledge. But there is something that happens in suffering that encourages us to see in ways that we would not otherwise see. Pain and suffering or brokenness and unfulfillment or injustice and oppression can play a role in awakening us, making us aware of what is not right, what should not be, and then open us to the consideration of where we might find redemption or liberty or healing. And it's the way that suffering might do that that makes it good for the soul. To acknowledge poverty always opens us to consider where true abundance lies. Now this is not to say that we should seek out suffering in order to find redemption. Certainly there's lots of examples in church history of that belief, and that's kind of sick actually, and we call that masochism. You don't seek out the suffering, but suffering and pain are a fact in life. And they have something to tell us if we allow their pain to touch us. And that's what I'm talking about, the way that that happens. And when that happens, it's good for the soul. And it's, it's really what Jesus points to in his Beatitudes. You know, Jesus' message would not have sold well, friends. It just... Things like the humble will be exalted and the exalted humbled and, you know, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. <laughs> but his Beatitudes, he just says it right up front. I mean, the, the first verses of, of Matthew 5, the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says essentially that poverty, grief, humility, and hunger are pathways to finding the one who offers the ultimate source of freedom and fulfillment. To be hungry and thirsty is a prerequisite to discovering the bread of life and living water. If you're not hungry and thirsty, 
you won't be looking for Jesus. So, beholding the suffering of Isaiah's servant that I read earlier, and beholding the suffering of Jesus on the cross, is something that is also good for our souls. Contemplating what this might mean. And bottom line for me is, is that both of these texts, the texts of Jesus' crucifixion and death and resurrection and the text of Isaiah 53, both of them, to me, primarily tell the story of the faithfulness of God. And it's a faithfulness so powerful that it transforms and inspires others to walk on the same path. That faithfulness to the faithfulness of God is what we see in the birth, life, death, ministry, and resurrection of Jesus, and also in this word from Isaiah in the 6th century BC about an unknown, unnamed servant, and trying to identify who that servant is has been a task that fills volumes of books. Um, But probably the best description of it is that the, the servant that's being spoken of in this passage is a collective of people in Israel who have remained faithful to God and, and neither experienced or taught that the exile was some sort of punishment, nor did they reject God in the midst of that exile, but somewhere in between remained faithful in relationship to a loving God who continued to want covenant relationship to them. And if we read on in Isaiah, we see that this group is persecuted. This group is laughed at. This group is ignored because it isn't the typical explanation of we sinned, God got mad, we went into exile, or forget this God, He sent us away. He's turned his back on us. We're going to turn our backs on him. But these were those who continued in the suffering and were punished by their own people and yet remained faithful to God. It is a faithfulness that transforms and inspires others to walk on the same path. And they both paint to one who unjustly suffered and yet continued to hold on to the God who was holding on to them. And in so doing, they made a way for all of us to find that same faithful, righteous path. There's a lot of explanation that goes into the cross of Jesus, trying to figure out what it's about. And I like Wendell Berry's line in one of his poems, and I'll apply it to this. Explain it how you will, but the only thing explainable will be your explanation. That's a lot of what theology is about, is explaining explanations. 
But Jesus says something quite different. He tells his disciples to watch in Gethsemane. Just watch. Just shut up and watch. He tells us at the table, eat and drink, which is a similar kind of statement. Take it in. And that's why I like, more than anything else, C.S. Lewis's explanation of the explanation. At the end of Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you know the book, Aslan has been killed by the white witch on the stone table, and there is a resurrection that takes place, and he encounters the children, Susan and Lucy, after he is resurrected. And Susan asks him the question, what does it all mean? And Aslan replies, it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And so, rather than go on with the explanation, let me just reread a portion of Isaiah 54 and a portion of Philippians 2, because they both give witness to this deeper magic that has been around since before the dawn of time. Out of his anguish he shall see light, he shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of human beings, and being found in human form. He became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Help us to hear your invitation, O God and to respond to that in humility and joy. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.